Hi, friends. Thank you for tuning in to the Interfaith America podcast with me, Ibu Patel. We'd love your help in growing the community of listeners. Please review, subscribe, and share. And if you want to talk more about this podcast, feel free to tweet me at Ibu Patel. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. This is the Interfaith America podcast, and I'm Ibu Patel. American democracy cannot be its best self unless people of all identities and communities thrive. So how do people thrive? My friend Trabian Shorters will offer a view in this podcast about thriving through viewing ourselves as contributors, as full of assets and aspirations. That, says Trabian, is what racial equity work is all about. And it is grounded in the spirit world, which is, as Trabian will share, the real world. Trabian Shorters is the CEO of BME Community, an award-winning network of innovators, leaders, and champions who invest in aspiring communities. He is an author, one of the leading advocates of a view called asset framing in the DEI movement, somebody who's been at the highest levels of business, philanthropy, and civic leadership, a friend that I have known for nearly 20 years, one of the most acute and beautiful minds in American life. I'm thrilled to introduce you to my friend, Trabian Shorters. So friend, let's start with this. I love this line. You cannot lift people up by putting them down. And it feels like in some ways, that's your whole approach in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's your line, by the way, and I use it all the time and properly cite you. Unpack it for us. You cannot lift people up by putting them down. No, I appreciate that. Uh, and actually, where that got popularized, it's the headline to an article that appeared in the Chronicle of Philanthropy, I want to say, three, four years ago. So I really should credit Stacey Palmer, who edited that piece and runs the Chronicle. But the concept human beings are much more narrative driven than we give ourselves credit for being, right? And so whichever way you introduce somebody or some place or something frames the way that your brain categorizes them, right? And so you literally can't lift someone up by putting them down. Like if you introduce someone by their threat or challenge or problem or whatever, your brain categorizes them as potentially harmful, right? And even if they're not harmful now, potentially harmful, you know, like a spider or a rat, or, you know, something that could pose a danger to you is the way it gets categorized. What's language that we use for human beings that we think is helpful, but which our brain categorizes as harmful or potentially harmful? Oh, there's a ton of uh, really common terms like homeless, disadvantaged, underserved, at risk, high poverty, bottom of the pyramid. Basically, any of the bottom unders, X's, you know, all, all those sort of defined in contrast with deficit-oriented ways of engaging people. Your brain basically does two things immediately when it encounters anything, really. It it reads for familiar and it reads for potential threat. And so if something is familiar, you treat it like it's basically safe. And if something is not familiar, then it's treated as potentially harmful, right? And so all those terms essentially literally dehumanize. So this language that is 
increasingly standard in the world of positive social change. I'm thinking marginalized, oppressed. There you go. That if you go to college and you are interested in social change, you learn that language as the standard language. That's right. That actually is language that our brains categorize as threat language. Yeah, yeah. And and so probably the better way to understand it is, obviously people use this language because they're trying to draw attention to the problems and things that need to be fixed. And so the motivations are all, all good. And that's what I'm saying. We underappreciate the power of narrative. Right? We underappreciate that the ways that we introduce something, the ways that we tell its story, triggers so many of our responses that we believe that the way to draw attention to problems is to dramatize the, you know, the problem, like center the problem, right? But in centering the problem, yes, you draw attention to it because we are hardwired to respond to threats. But right now, the way these associations work is when you use that language over and over and over again, and by the way, the Frameworks Institute, which studies this stuff, has um, done reports on what I'm about to share with you. When you use that language over and over and over again, and you make compound associations, right, with any group, then every time you say the name of that group, all those associations come with it, right? And if the only associations that get heavily repeated are negative ones, okay, then this group becomes something or someone that you are literally physiologically hardwired to want to either avoid, control, or kill. Like, you have your threat response, right? And so that, that's the problem. Like, we're trying to do good things, but since we don't understand the power of mental narrative. We do it by stigmatizing the people at the center of the question, such that even if you win the resource you're trying to attract, like just think, and you can think of any group, like you fill in the blank, right? You dramatize whatever it is around whatever group it is, and you win your campaign against their marginalization, against their oppression, whatever. You win, right? But just recognize you've won by writing them into the public narrative as a problem. And that's the way they will always be referenced when the name comes up. So there's a science behind this, and you use the language of science, right? Framework, mental narrative, brain chemistry. Yeah. Explain the science behind this. Yeah. Started doing this work when I was you know, at the Knight Foundation, started this group called Beating Community, and it was based on research into, into culture change. And what we came to realize is narrative change is culture change, meaning literally the stories we tell each other create the world that we see, like, like literally. And so... Studying the work of Dr. Daniel Kahneman and Daniel Tversky and others, we came to appreciate what I've said to you before, that we're far more narrative-driven than we realize. So the main sciences that we employ or invoke are cognitive science, social science, and then something I call cultural psychology. The main tenets therein are this belief that human beings are rational decision-makers is a cognitive illusion. We are not. We, we don't have the capacity to be rational decision makers. There are too many variables to track to be rational decision makers. Anytime you give a human being a complex question, we instantly do this thing called substitution, which means you, know, you ask someone who's the right person to be president of the United States. How are they supposed to know? What, what, what goes into the job of being president? There's too many things to consider. So instead, you instantly subconsciously substitute a question you can't answer. Who do I like the most? Oh, okay. I like this, or I like that. Okay, and now we got our answer. And so that inductive process happens instantly. And then what we tend to do is we then find the facts to fit our inductive conclusion. That's why you can see people who encounter a situation have two entirely different responses to it. It's because one person's operating from one narrative, the other person's operating from a different narrative, and they will lean on the facts 
that fit what their intuition has told them to see. That's why when you're priming people's intuition with negative associations, you're, you're going to lose before you begin. You, you cannot build equity by denigrating those at the center of the equity conversation. So part of what I think is really interesting and also challenging about this social change movement is that some of the people who we're talking about are insisting on that language and sometimes insist on it, on applying it to others. So there are not a few times when I, as an Ismaili Muslim brown-skinned male, will walk into a room and somebody will say, I want the oppressed person to speak and they'll invite, they'll look at me. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm a Rhodes Scholar with a doctor from, I'm like, in what world am I an oppressed person? Just, just as kind of a, a matter of like the other dimensions of my identity. Yeah. And even if I wasn't, I'm just very uncomfortable with that label. Yeah. But that individual who is offering me that label thinks that she's doing me a favor and she insists on it for herself. And so I find this really challenging because you want to call people what they want to be called, right? Muhammad Ali should be called Muhammad Ali, not Cassius Clay, right? And at the same time, you are offering us a different approach based on science. As we get involved in this interview, I want to talk about the sacredness of this also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I, I'm curious what you do in a concrete situation when somebody says, as an oppressed person, X, Y, Z. Yeah, yeah. So here, let, let's be clear about a couple of things. Number one, you know, you and I grew up in the era that's basically post-civil rights. And so the recognition of the oppression, the recognition of the injustice and the disparity, like that was one of the successes of the movement, right? To, to say that you can't just say, oh, this is just the way it is, we're going to leave it. So pointing out the disparity was a success, right? Pointing out the gaps and the injustice and the unfairness, that was success 50 years ago. So let's be clear, that's progress. It's not a bad thing. In terms of making the arguments, though, and making the cases, the cases have now become dependent upon you know, identifying the disparity, the oppression, the blah, blah, blah. And so people who operate out of that narrative, they are trying to do something constructive. We recognize that. What they may not realize is 50 years of relating to people as though they don't have aspirations, they don't make contributions. So what I mean by that is when you talk about the oppressed, you talk about the underserved, whatever, it's pretty normal to totally ignore any expressions of what their actual aspirations are or to ignore any expression of what their actual contributions are. Like yeah. their value statement is not part of the identity you make for them. In the current way of arguing these cases, the identity, which is also your agency, is based on your disparity. And so even folks who are in those groups learn to tell their story by their disparity because that's what gives you agency. Right now, the culture says that if you want to be seen, then you have to point out what's messed up, and then I can identify you. So I want to recognize we've taken something that was a successful play 50, 60, 70 years ago. And we've made it super normed to the point where we are overemphasizing the negative aspects of someone's experience, totally erasing the aspirational, contributory, valuable aspects of their, of their narrative. And in doing so, you have created a stereotype. You know, you've created a stick figure. You know, it's not a well-rounded narrative about anyone. So all we're saying when we think about asset framing is 
You don't have to ignore any of the disparities. They're all real. So we're not saying ignore any of that stuff. We're saying that is not what defines a people. Nope, any people. Even someone who is living homeless. That's not what defines them. That's not, they don't get up in the morning, you know, aspiring or, or, or seeking to advance, you know, homelessness in their life, right? Poor people don't get up thinking, you know, my ambition in life is to like walk through you know, the world as, as a poor person. Like that's just not, these are not defining characteristics, but, we, but we, we've come to treat them. So like you said, you come into a room, someone sees your brown skin, they go, oh, be oppressed. I'm like, is he? I mean, is he? And like you said before, even if you might fit the description some other ways, is that what defines you? Let's say you, you, you did fit whatever the, somebody's you know, mental image is. I sincerely believe that it makes more sense to define people by their aspirations and their contributions. By the way, not ignoring their challenges at all. The good way to get into it is everybody's trying to do something good, and we've, we've inherited a methodology that says, put them down so you can pick them up, <laughs> right? That's, the, that's what we've inherited. Now, the consequence of that methodology is even when you win, you've done so by writing people into the narrative as a problem, as I've said, and the people whom you label that way don't like you for labeling that. Like, oh, by, by and large, all these institutions, all these organizations that organize on behalf of the poor and the oppressed and blue, when the poor and the oppressed self-organize, they don't like any of them people. They're not excited by people who are constantly putting them down and see them as threats and problems and, and literally stigmatize them. So this method that we inherited, it's run its course. It's tired. Everyone is exhausted by it, actually. On all sides, people are worn the hell out. So what we're offering with asset framing is when you're willing to introduce people by the aspirations and contributions, still never ignoring their challenges. You present a fuller picture of who's in front of you. You give your brain fuller narratives to draw from. You're more likely to see people's actual value because you've named their value, right? The way we do it right now, we literally describe people without that. Like we don't, we don't name their value in the way that we think about them, right? And unsurprisingly, when you're willing to speak to people or define people by their aspirations and by their contributions, and then engage them to remove the things that are blocking those aspirations and blocking those then of course they dig you more. They will to rock with you better, right? They don't feel offended by you know, the way that you introduce or think of them, right? And you become less of a, you know, kind of an ass in terms of the way that you carry yourself in this company, you know? Appreciate that so much. And speaking of the brown skin thing, one of the things that just occurs to me in listening to you is, I don't think I'm oppressed because I have brown skin. And it's not that it was easy to have brown skin growing up in Glen Ellen, Illinois in the 1980s, right? I would tell my mom, come home and be like, this is what these kids are calling me because of my skin color. And it hurt. Mm. And my mom would say, your beautiful brown skin, the skin color that those people fly to Greece and Italy to sit in the sun to get... You're beautiful, and she couldn't understand it, yeah. right? And it's not because she was dim or stupid; it's because she was seeing a different part of reality more fully. Yeah, those people want your skin tone. They actually go to huge lengths to get it, <laughs> right. right? Right. And so, I don't even think of this as like certain parts of my identity, education, etc., are more salient, and then I I accept that other parts of my identity have, have the label oppressed attached to them. And I definitely don't accept this about, about Islam or, or my religion. I think to myself that I have what I believe is the final prophet and the final revelation. 
and a belief system that says that that God picks up a lump of clay and gives it his breath and thereby creates the first human being and and gives him this vaunted position, makes him his abd and halifa, his servant and representative. Mm-hmm. And why wouldn't I live into that possibility, that frame, you know? And part of what I want to talk to you about is you speak so fluently about the science of narrative and framing, but really underlying everything is the sacredness. Oh, yeah. In one of your interviews, you say, look, we've, to our great detriment, we have taken the spirit and the sacred out of social change work. And so somehow King's beloved community, which is infused with God and spirit, becomes the big tent. And you're you're the one who actually said to me, why do we talk about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and not Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.? So just let's begin this kind of turn to what is the sacred that underlies your work with BME community, with asset framing, with the Black Love campaign? What is the sacred? Yeah, like all of us get born into these physical forms that we hold. And then, of course, we're immediately in the streams of the history that we're born into, right? All, so all that stuff, all that circumstantial stuff, let's acknowledge that happens. We don't have any control over that. From my, my experience, I was born in a little factory town. Uh, my mom was a teenager when I was born. I spent a lot of time in my early years with my grandparents living in their household. Uh, and they were these, like, simple Southern Christians. And when I say simple, what I mean is they didn't bother being sophisticated, right? They didn't need to be. God's love is simple. It's, it doesn't, you, don't, you don't have to go, you don't have to get degrees to understand God. Like, their, their whole attitude was just like, literally, my grandfather taught us that being a Christian means you have to love, seek to love people the way that God loves people. Be willing to give them what they need, be willing to show them love, be willing to sacrifice on behalf of their well-being. Like, like do love. Like, and grandpa in particular was like, well, that's Christianity. Like, try to live in the world manifesting God's love. Like, just try, you know. And, you know, you're going to fail, but to say where you forgive others, forgive yourself, like grace is a hugely important concept. Like the idea that you can't really earn God's love. So just accept it, you know, give it, be it. So that's, that's how I was raised, right? But I was also raised in the hood. I was also raised in a place where, you know, it was just violent and unpredictable, right? And people were desperate. So the contrast between my grandparents' home and everything outside the doors was stark. My grandfather's idea of the real world was always the spirit world. It was always what's going on in your spirit life because that's what, that's, to him, that's the eternal part. That's gotta be more real than anything that is not eternal. I, I just think, well, just to pause and underscore this, right? My grandfather's definition of the real world was the spirit world. I just think that that is so simple and beautiful and culture shifting. The real world is the spirit world. Yeah. And, and, and to your point, you use that word simple. That's what I mean. For them, it was all simple. Like just, you know, <laughs> do right by people. So I believe in the love doctrine. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a particularly, I don't think I'm a great Christian. Like I don't, you know, I'm not going to church every week and like, I'm not devoutly into the scripture and, and the like. But the Christians who raised me said that I have to, you know, love people the way that God loves people. And that I do strive to do at all times. And it's, it's energizing, you know, it's, it's an enriching way of, of looking at the world. And it doesn't require me to be Pollyannish. It doesn't require me to ignore all the horrible realities that I experienced and witnessed as a child. But what it does do is it means that none of that stuff 
define that. So let's go back to this piece about aspiration and spirit. I want to draw that connection. When I was putting together the logic for asset framing, the science says what it says. It says we're narrative driven. And if you want to change someone's, the way they show up in the world, someone's culture, their personal culture, right? Both the science and the sacred say that you must speak to their aspirational identity. And by that, I mean, you have to speak life to who they aspire to be, who they see themselves as, who they hope to be, both in the science and in the sacred. Like you, uh, in order to move the spirit, you have to speak life. You have to breathe, just like you said, the metaphor, you have to breathe uh, into the clay. And so asset framing says, we're going to define people by their aspirations and contributions before noting their challenges. That's the, that's the cognitive tool. The root of the cognitive tool is to engage people first by their aspirations. The word aspiration very intentionally has the word spirit, you know, baked into it. Like what, what is the spirit that is moving that person? When we think about asset framing, to begin your relationship with someone based on the positive spirit that is moving in them. And that, by the way, is the connection to King's idea of the beloved community and the love doctrine. Like it all, it all flows together. And what I found is when you come at people from kind of a spiritual religious angle, all kind of associations pop up and walls, you know, people just get up very, very tight. But if you come at them from a Nobel laureate and, and research psychologist, and I yeah, just, just, let's just talk about science, the science of cognition. People, oh, we're okay with that. I mean, that makes sense. And the fact that the two are flip sides of the same coin, when that's discovered, people are far more comfortable with, with the knowledge. Interfaith America with Ibu Patel is brought to you by a generous grant from the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. By the way, if you're enjoying this conversation, you ought to check out my new book, We Need to Build Field Notes for Diverse Democracy. It's a guide for those who want to make positive social change and an invitation into the next chapter of American religion, a chapter I'm calling Interfaith America. We Need to Build is published by Beacon Press and available wherever you buy books. Now, back to the podcast. Javin, would your grandfather call what you're doing a ministry? Oh, yeah. No, he was, he was clear about it. Do you see what you're doing as a ministry? Oh, totally. But, but to be fair, living is a ministry. Like, to be fair, it's all, it's, it's all ministry, really. Again, because if you believe that the spirit world is a real world, then how you manifest is your ministry. And ministry itself is just you know, care and feeding of spirits, right? So yeah, it's a ministry, but it's all ministry. Like, even my grandparents' marriage was totally a ministry. So part of what's striking me in the course of, of this conversation is you saying, and me agreeing with you, right, that the science is important and that people understand science. When, when you know, you're like, look, I read Daniel Kahneman, Amos Tversky. I think you called him Daniel Tversky earlier, but I think, it, I think it's Amos Tversky. It is. You're right. We use language like cognition and mental frameworks and narratives, right? That is the lingua franca of not only foundations, but also of, of nonprofit organizations. Yeah. And it, it is actually quite different than where we come from. You know, my grandmother, my mama, she would call this seva work. Oh, you're doing seva. And I would say, no, no, I'm starting a nonprofit organization, NGO, non, right? She, and she would listen to me and then she would say, yeah, seva. 
you know, and, and, and I just wonder why not walk into the Knight Foundation and say, Fabian and Ibu are starting a, a ministry together whose purpose is to integrate an asset framing approach to racial equity and religious pluralism. Yeah. But I think it's a, just a practical response to that, which is it's okay to speak the language that people understand. Right. And so just as in the example of how the beloved community becomes a big tent, it is translation so long as the translator is still alive. And then when the translator, you know, goes away and it, it, it flattens out, that's where the danger comes in. But the point is, speak to people in the, in the language they understand. Or, or you know, I, I used to say, when in Rome, put a sash on your dachiki and call it a koga. It's cool. Like nobody, you know, it'll be more colorful, but it's all good. Like, so, I, so part, one reason is just practical. I, I, I just think it's okay to, to reach people on the frequency that they're on. And one of the things I, you know, I respect and love about you is you see things in multiple dimensions and you... And you can synthesize, right? You're, you're, you're just, you're tremendous at that. And you do it quickly, you do it skillfully. But the point is, if they're not able to see in all those colors, then give it to them in the colors they can see it in. It's okay. Part of what strikes me about what you're doing is you insist on talking about your grandparents. And you insist on talking about them having coffee with God every morning. And you insist on talking about the love doctrine and the love ministry, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And part of what I'm curious about is what does it mean to inherit that story and not not be an exponent of it in an, its entire form? It's ritual, it's church going. Yeah, you are living out this narrative, and you're not doing all the things your grandparents did. Yep. I'm curious how you think about that. Yeah. Um, well, remember my grandfather, my grandmother did it too. But I identify more my grandfather's a little boy, right? But. But remember, my grandfather said that it's not about pushing people. It's about living a certain way, right? And so I don't have to try to evangelize anyone. I don't have to try to indoctrinate anyone. What I have to do is practice, right? Do the doing. And, and my grandfather, by the way, he did consider himself an evangelist, but he wasn't, it was the love doctrine evangelist, which means instead of browbeating people into submission, you live a certain way. And he, 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 used to, he would literally say this to us. Live a certain way, and when people ask you why your life is so good, then you tell them. Then you tell them about your God, you tell them about your, and that's when people are more willing to receive it anyway. But the point being, the way I was raised, it was never about the ritual. It was always about the relationship, right? And so sometimes one comes with the other, and that's fine. But no one needs to ordain my relationship with God. No practice determines whether I am or whether I'm, again, you can't earn it. You can't earn God's love. Like, so so no, no, no particular practice determines whether you can and you can't. But the relationship is what matters, right? And and if they're having coffee with God every morning, it's because they have a very close relationship, you know, with the Creator. So that's the way I learned. So I don't I don't feel like I'm being inconsistent. Actually, I feel like my way of practicing takes into account some of the metaphors and some of the rituals that they inherited. I don't necessarily agree with. It's not my job to figure out what's the best practice or the worst practice. It's my job to try to practice. You know what I mean? Like as best I can. You know. So that's how I I guess that's my my loophole, but. I don't, I don't, I don't think it's a, I think it's a beautiful explanation, right? That there's, and thank you for that. I mean, it, you know, I, I've known you for 20 years and I learned something in that, in, in that there's an essence that you're carrying on and the expressions matter, but they change. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's it. So here's something I learned about you. I think at Sushi Samba on South Beach about eight years ago, which is a delicious place to learn something new about a friend, by the way. 
You have a great memory, man. I, I, remember, I remember things about you. I remember things about you. So I had assumed wrongly that your entire formation and your significant life experience had been lived in entirely Christian context. And you kind of gave me this look and you're like, you know, my wife was raised in a household with significant Muslim influence. I, mean, I think it was one of her parents was Muslim. Yes, she's Muslim. Muslim. And, you're, and you say, you know, sh- every morning she wakes up and says the Fatiha, like that is in my house. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of people these days, right? That you live in a household with multiple religious influences. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, how does that, how has that Muslim presence, right? Increasingly common in interfaith America. How has that impacted your understanding of the love doctrine, your understanding of asset framing, your understanding of uh, coffee with God and how that guides, guides you every morning? Yeah, look, maybe the first place to start with that is from my upbringing, and I think you tend to share this, we haven't talked about it exactly this way, but from my upbringing, it's actually kind of, it's deemed arrogant to say that you know the mind of God or that you know, that you have to, Get close, but there's a you know just record disrespect that that none of us has whole knowledge, right? And so for that reason, once again, the concept of grace ends up being transformative because my mother is sort of doctrinal. She's like, there's one true religion that is ours. You know, Yitzhak's mom is, I think, more flexible, but absolutely devout Muslim. Like she's not judgmental necessarily, but she's definitely devout. And so when it was time to bring our families together for the wedding, they're like, oh, we don't have to tell some people they can't come. Like, let's just figure it out right now, right? And we decided, no, we're not. We're just going to invite our loved ones. And of course, the wedding was beautiful, and, and there's never been any friction between either side. And what, what that has illustrated to me is that at the end of the day, when love is at the center of the relationship, then people are willing to admit they don't know, like, we, we can disagree, but to act as if my perspective is the right and yours is the wrong just feels foolish in the face of love. Like when, when, when people are loving each other, it's like, well, what am I supposed to do now? <laughs> I'm, I'm supposed to break the, break the vibe, break the, the harmony, break the joy, break the peace. For what? Like what, how do you justify it in the face of love, right? And so anyway, all that to say, our faith practices, we both, acknowledge the creator we both acknowledge the divinity of the creator we both acknowledge the oneness of the creator we have these daughters that we create these twin twin girls that we created who are the embodiment of all that they are our faith and they are our spirits and they are our love and their names you know are uh, you know american and nigerian and what are their names there's tenon olo alua kende shorters and then there's athena hipe alua I will shorter. And so it's a lot of names, but the point is, those are our daughters and we call them by their, you know, U.S. names were in the U.S. <laughs> and we call them by other names who were other places. They answer the bow. They speak Yoruba. They speak English. Wow. They, uh, you know, grandma calls one Banji and the other, the other one Tilewa, which is the name she gave them. Yeah, but I'm just saying like, the, yeah. so they, the, the, the cultural fluency, they're just getting it because that's the household they live in. And similarly, when I think about Yutune and I, in terms of our faith beliefs, it's the same type of fluency. I don't know how to describe it. I don't know how to describe it. One I know. I, I am feeling you. I appreciate that. Tell us about BME Community. And tell us about the, the Black Love Campaign. One of the things I want to highlight here is 
there are people who say, let me tell you what you're doing wrong. And you are offering a different way of doing things and you're modeling it. Mm -hmm. I just appreciate that. Like we defeat the things we do not love by building the things we do. Mm -hmm. Tell us what you've built. Yeah. Maybe again, a central idea to, to start the conversation is you can't dispel an idea by repeating it. So to say that you don't want poverty is to focus on poverty. To say that you don't want crime is to focus on crime. So you don't want injustice to focus on injustice, right? What you eat has power, right? Even no, no matter how you pay attention to it, you give energy to those things you focus on. And so currently, if you're black or if you're someone who focuses, you know, thinks about black progress or whatever, currently we're all taught to focus on what is broken and, and, and threatening and dangerous and wrong. Like that's like, generally when you speak about black people, it's super consistent to attack those negative terms. Like I think for instance, why is it that it feels uncomfortable to so many people to just say something generically positive about black males without any caveat, right? Black men are the most engaged fathers in America, full stop. Why, why does that feel like an incomplete sentence? <laughs> and that's true. You have data that shows black men are the most engaged fathers in America. Yeah, yeah. Centers, Centers for Disease Control Prevention's done studies that, that show that in terms of day-to-day interactions with children, and, you know, combing hair, reading, like whatever, or week-to-week, depending on what your circumstance is. But the point is, black males, regardless of marital status, spend the most time actively engaged with children. But I raise... You know, not, not to get caught in these difficult points, but to raise the, the broader point, which is right now, Black leaders and, and their allies are taught to denigrate Black people in the name of helping them, right? That culture of denigration is an artifact of our aspiration, you know, this aspirational identity piece, that, that culture is, is an artifact of our aspiration to be seen and validated or rewarded by white folks essentially right the, the way this culture is established we center white folks in nearly everything and then we compare ourselves and the ranking always has to be where the white folks are on top just as a cultural reflex and so that putting yourself down to point out your disparity or distance from them has become the way that you engage from their resources or other people's resources whatever like so be me we recognize that insisting on denigrating yourself and insisting on, on centering somebody else in your own narrative is spiritual death, even when you win, you lose. So you have to speak life to people's actual aspirations. By the way, we don't limit this to Black people. I'm just saying, and be me, generally, but certainly for Black people, the idea is a simple one. What if Every reference to black people didn't begin with something denigrating. Just you know, what if we what if we developed a different muscle? Like what if what if we could, if if your first thought of a black person actually included their known aspirations, their known contributions, then your mind and your behaviors and everything else would adjust accordingly. Ultimately, that's the objective. And by the way, um, I want to be clear: Beanie community is not about changing other people's minds about Black people. That when we started it, that wasn't the objective. 
the objective is to get Black people to change their orientation to themselves. That's the core objective. Because it doesn't matter what other people call you. It only matters what you answer to. And currently, we answer to at-risk, low-income, blah, 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 blah. Like all, all hold, on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I mean, damn. It doesn't matter what people call you. It only matters what you answer to. I mean, damn. That's like, uh, I have one sentence for you, and you will think on it for the rest of your life. Doesn't matter <laughs> what people call you. It only matters what you answer to. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. So BB's thing is getting us to answer to something else. We are people who aspire to live, own, vote, and excel. That's, that's what, go to the, the Agenda for Black Love and the campaign. We did a study again. We, you know, we, we pulled together Black leaders who are proximate in their various communities, and we asked them what they would put in an agenda if it was up to them to create the Black agenda. And the fun thing about it is the things that they bucketed for cultural priorities, economic priorities, and political priorities ended up sort of bucketing into four big categories. Most of the cultural stuff was around having a certain type of life, right? We're, we're free to live, we're free to celebrate our cultures, multiple across multiple different expressions, but to celebrate our cultures and to be healthy, right? So that was one big bucket. That's the live bucket. The own bucket was, you know, the ability to acquire wealth, transfer wealth, like normal objectives. The vote bucket, of course, is obvious around, you know, there's always been movements for black voting rights and, and those continue. And then the Excel is around Black joy, like recognizing the creativity, the brilliance, the resilience, but not the pain resilience, the joy resilience that, that Black folks have always expressed, right? So just acknowledging that we are a people who create the ability to live on Vote and Excel, and we aspire to live on Vote and Excel. BME's relationship to Black people is, how do we help build upon Black people's love to make a better society for everyone. We can do that. And the great thing about it is, yes, it centers us in our narrative, but in our narrative, we exist to make a better world. So we're not actually kicking anybody out of the, like anybody who wants to live on Vote and Excel, I'm down for that. I want you to be successful. I want you to do well. I just want you to want that for me too. <laughs> and if, if we can both do that, let's rock and roll because we are of one spirit at that point. Right. I'm smiling throughout this whole thing. One of the reasons I'm smiling is um, when you came to our racial equity working group uh, at Interfaith America a few days ago, one of the comments that somebody said was, I understand where this organization comes from, meaning Interfaith America, like you and Ibu have been friends for a long time. This is the language Ibu speaks, right? Ibu talks about loving Islam more than you hate Islamophobia. There you go. It's about a deep embracing of the positive things in your life, your own aspirations and contributions, the narratives you come from, the recognition of the structural racism, et cetera, as a barrier to that contribution. That's right. But that's not the heart of your identity, right? It, hating Islamophobia is not the heart of my identity. Living out Islam is the heart of my identity. Right. I want to be honest about the barriers to that. Islamophobia is a barrier to that. But it is not an identity. And, and actually, it kind of integrates with uh, one of the chief metaphors at IFYC, which is potluck nation. The big idea here is America's not a melting pot. It's a potluck. A melting pot melts your identities away. A potluck recognizes people's different identities because you need them to contribute their delicious dish to the national feast. 
You are expecting their contribution. You are relying on their ability to make a delicious dish. I love that. It would be stupid to erect a barrier to that. But you don't yeah. tell people, I am sure you are too oppressed to contribute a dish. You tell people, I know the deliciousness that's happening in your kitchen. Yeah. I'm going to reduce the barriers so that you can offer your contribution. Because otherwise, how does the whole nation feast? That's right. I love that. Great metaphor. And, and I, I totally agree. And I'm looking forward to our, our ministry together and looking forward to you know, this integration of religious pluralism and racial equity work based on your definition of equity, which is we all have value. Yeah. We all have value. I appreciate you a ton, Trabian Shorters. I love you and thank you for being a gift in my life to the organization as a board member, to the nation and to the world. There's a, a phrase in the Quran, Ramatul Alameen, a special mercy upon all the worlds. And that's how I feel about you. Thank you. And you know, I love you back, brother. So glad to be a part of Interfaith America now. And, and thanks for having me on your show. Thank you. There is so much in this interview. I love the way that Trabian weaves in the science of things and the spirituality of things. I love the way that he insists that there is within all of us a best self and helps us become it and see it in others. I love this line. It doesn't matter what people call you. It only matters what you answer to. To read more about this conversation and to find resources and stories about bridge building in our religiously diverse democracy, visit our website, interfaithamerica.org. I'm Ibu Patel. Interfaith America with Ibu Patel is brought to you by a generous grant from the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Interfaith America with Ibu Patel is a production by Interfaith America and Philo's Future Media. I'm your host, Ibu Patel. The Interfaith America team is Silma Suba, executive producer, Monique Parsons, senior producer, Terry Simon, coordinating producer, Neil Agarwal, researcher, Johanna Zorn provided editorial support. Production by Philo's future media team. Keisha T.K. Dutess, executive producer. Manny Faces, producer and audio editor. Share this show with a friend. Subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Find more resources on religious diversity, racial equity, bridging and belonging, Dean and Dunya, faith and world at www.interfaithamerica.org.